Good morning. I'm going to be reading our sermon text for today. Uh, that is 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 15. That's page 988 in your uh, pew Bible. Um, again, that's 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 15. My name's Ryan Elwell. I worship here with my family, my wife Kayla, my son, who's two, his name is uh, Shep, and my daughter, who's four, her name's Denia. Um, so th- this is God's word. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, thank you that we get to experience your guidance as a shepherd. You've, you have led us here to worship you. You've led us here through worship. Uh, we got to look at your glory and your character and sing about it. We got to confess our sin. Um, we, you've led us to repentance. You've led us to assurance of the forgiveness that we receive through Christ. Um, because of that, we can, we can ask you for anything that, that we desire, um, knowing that you care for us. And we also, uh, you led us to, uh, to give of our, of our monetary possessions, just as an expression that, that we have everything that we need through Christ. And so now, with open hands, we ask that you would uh, speak to us, fill us up with your word through your spirit, and also that you would please uh, be with your servant as he preaches, guard his mind and tongue, so that he will only say what your Holy Spirit would have us to hear. Um, Through this, may your church be strengthened, and please uh, glorify your name through it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Generally speaking, uh, pastoral trust, trust in the character and integrity of pastors is not flourishing in our society. Uh, In God's providence, as I was getting ready to think about this passage of scripture, I just listened to a sermon. I was not preparing for this sermon. I just keep up with some pastors around the country and their sermons. And last Sunday, a friend of mine Uh, mentioned in his sermon that in a recent Gallup poll, uh, only 32% of Americans say that pastors have a high or very high level of honesty and ethics. That number, 32%, is evidently an all-time low. Uh, That compares with 65% of veterinarians, so our pets are in good hands, maybe not so much the souls of those who are attending churches. Uh, Pastors even came in below chiropractors. Just don't shoot the messenger, Craig. Okay, Craig's not a chiropractor, but he's got a loved one who is. 33% of chiropractors are viewed as trustworthy, but we do fare better than journalists. Uh, All the talk of fake news, perhaps. 19% only of journalists. And we do fare a little better than politicians who come in at 7%. 
Now, there are, uh, I think, a number of contributing factors to this decline in uh, the trust that there is in pastors. Uh, there are news stories often of abuse uh, by pastors or they're covering up abuse. There are instances of marital infidelity that make the news. There is the prevalence of what is uh, sometimes called the prosperity gospel. Pastors who get up and appeal to their congregations, whether in person or on television, to give money to their ministry, and they will be blessed in doing so, and they get rich at the expense of others. Uh, there may be personal experiences of misused pastoral authority, not listening or respecting the opinions of others. Pastors retaliating harshly or publicly against any form of criticism, uh, equating their suggestions with Scripture and binding people's consciences to their own opinions. And then there's, there's probably a, a good number of people who don't trust pastors because at some point a pastor lovingly and gently challenged them about an area of sin in their lives and they didn't like that. And they found it convenient to simply ignore the pastors and call them harsh and unloving because they didn't want their sin dealt with. Whatever the causes of this mistrust, it does present a very real problem in walking out God's design for his church. Remember last week we saw from Matthew 18 that churches exist to protect and represent the name or the identity of Jesus in the world. And uh, in the church's work of doing that, Christ has ordained, he has given the church leaders to help them carry out the authority that they have and the stewardship that they have to reflect the name and the character and the reputation of God. Uh, this morning, we are bringing to conclusion a short series of sermons in which we have considered this matter of authority, which we have said is a good gift of God, but one that is sadly uh, oftentimes abused and misused. Uh, the conviction undergirding these five sermons is that in our, uh, our contemporary world, which is very opposed to all forms of authority, very individualistic world that we live in, that we must contend for what God has declared good. Uh, that's true in many spheres of life. It's really true in every sphere of life. But here in the church, for the sake of our witness to the king of love, as we just sang of, the king means authority, rule, but he's the king of love. And so for the sake of our witness to him, it's especially important that we see this good gift of authority exercised rightly among us. But given the many instances of abused authority, even in churches, even by pastors, how do you know which ones you can trust? How do you know which ones you should, in good conscience, submit to? 
Well, that's what we want to consider together in the final message of this series this morning. It's what the Apostle Paul is helping the Thessalonian church to understand in these words that Ryan just read aloud uh, to us. I would summarize the main idea of verses 12 and 13. I, he, he read verses 14 and 15 as well, where, and I, I'll explain why uh, in a little bit, but we're really focusing on verses 12 and 13 this morning. And I would summarize the main idea of verses 12 and 13 like this. Affectionately honor Christ-like leaders who labor strenuously for your holiness. Affectionately honor Christ-like leaders who labor strenuously for your holiness. To help us understand and apply that main idea, I just want us to observe from verses 12 and 13, uh, first, the responsibilities of leaders to the church's members, and then secondly, the responsibilities of church members to its leaders, to their leaders. Uh, It's my hope that in this somewhat unusual sermon, perhaps some of you are thinking this is a little bit strange. Young people, you would say it's a little sus. I told you I would say that one day, Maddie. That day has come. You don't even remember that day by the way you're looking at me. It may seem a little strange for a pastor to get up here and say, you're to highly esteem me. That is a little weird, I will admit. Hear me out. I think it's good for us, it's good for you to know what to expect from your pastors. What it is that we're here for and charged to be doing in submission to the chief shepherd so that we would be protected from bad authority and that we would be ushered into the great blessing that good authority is. I think it's good for you to hear sermons like this. I hope you'll be helped in it. So first, let's consider the responsibilities of leaders. Verse 12, again, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So we have here, Paul is addressing the brothers. You see there, he mentions the brothers 12 times in this letter to the Thessalonian church. Uh, That's just another way of saying the church. If you you look in your Bible, and it'd be helpful for you to have your Bible open throughout this sermon, in the very first verse of this letter, Paul writes to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's calling the church, the brothers in Thessalonica, to adopt a certain posture toward their leaders. The words leader or pastor even, I'm talking about pastoral authority, those words are not in this passage, but what we see here is that among this flock, you see that word among in verse 12, among this flock, there are certain ones who are understood and recognized to be over the flock. So the church has a particular authority as it represents Jesus, as it holds firm, as it looks to the Bible and clarifies this is what the gospel message is and these are the ones who are truly confessing the true gospel. That was last Sunday's sermon, but as the church seeks to carry out that, Christ has given 
leaders to the church to oversee them and to equip them and train them and help them to use their authority well. I think it is safe to identify these ones who are over the brothers as the pastors or elders of the church. I say that largely because of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, which says this, let the elders who rule well. That word rule is the same word in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, translated over. Rule is a tough word. Maybe your translation says something a little softer. When I hear the word rule, I think of like iron fist pounding on somebody. That's, that's not the spirit of this, but the idea is leading. Let the elders who rule or lead well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor, same word as in 1 Thessalonians 5, who labor in preaching and teaching. Let me read to you a couple of other verses in the New Testament about this call on leaders so that you can get a bit of a feel for the, the nature and the scope of this, uh, of this work. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the apostle Paul gathers the elders of the church in Ephesus and he gives them some parting words before he continues on his missionary travels and he says to the elders in Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for That word care is the word shepherd or pastor to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The writer to the uh, the Hebrews, in the letter to the Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So we we learn something here about the scope of this leading, this uh, ruling, if we want to use that word, this authority that pastor elders are to exercise, it's soul care. And it's rooted in their ability to instruct faithfully in the word of God. That's why when Paul writes to Timothy or Titus and he describes the qualifications for elders, he says that the elders must be able to teach. That doesn't mean that they're charismatic in the pulpit. It means that they are able to take the word of God and faithfully tell you what it means. And it's important that pastors do that because the word of God is where the pastor's authority comes from. We do not have authority to the degree that we deviate from the word of God. It is the word of God that is supremely authoritative. If you were to do a quick survey this afternoon of what are known as the pastoral epistles, the two letters to Timothy and Titus, if you were to do a a survey of those letters and if you were to underline, if you were that type of person who underlines or marks up your Bible, if you were to underline every reference to teaching in those three letters, your hand might get tired. Elders, pastors, I'm using those words interchangeably because they are the same person, they are the same people in the scriptures. Elders who rightly exercise authority do so in reliance upon God's word by 
feeding by teaching the church the word of God. They use the word of God to know the sheep, to lead the sheep, to feed the sheep, to protect the sheep. Kids, I wonder, kids, anybody have pets? Any of you kids have pets? I know some of you do. If you don't have pets, you've probably seen animals feeding. Have you ever seen an animal eating with their ears? No. Kids, did you ever see that? An animal eating with their ears? No. No, I bet you have not. But these sheep, the sheep of Christ, actually eat with their ears. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The people of God, his sheep feed, they eat his words. So they eat with their ears. Some of you are looking confused still, like, what do you, do you okay, we can talk about that later. The shepherds of the church exercise oversight by seeking to lead the sheep, direct the sheep, guide the sheep, helping them to flourish in love and good works with an eye toward that day, right? Keeping watch, it says in Hebrews 13, as those who will give an account, keeping an eye towards that day when all of us, shepherds and sheep, will stand before our king and head, the chief shepherd of the flock. There's an oversight that is involved in caring for the church. This is a little bit humbling because the idea that there are some over you, it, it, the implication is that you are not capable of following Jesus faithfully on your own. You need help. You need oversight. You need the care of others. If that just felt a little condescending that I just said that to you, remember, I've been a member of this church longer than I've been a pastor of it. And the pastors need the same care and oversight and admonishment, which we'll come to, as any member. I'm a sheep before I'm a shepherd. I'm a sheep more fundamentally than I am a shepherd. And we all need oversight. And giving that oversight, is, it's a labor. He says they labor. First Thessalonians 5. Those who are over you, uh, uh, to respect those who labor among you. I said in my little summary statement it was strenuous labor because I was really trying to just draw out the meaning of this word in its original language which refers to exerting oneself to the point of exhaustion. It's sweat-inducing labor that Paul is talking about here. He uses illustrations in one of his letters to Timothy like a hard-working farmer producing crops or soldiers or athletes to describe the kind of work that he has in mind. There's a diligence involved. Uh, Paul uses the phrase in 2 Corinthians 12, which I return to often, a spending and being spent for the sake of the souls of those in their charge. It is, it is not necessarily physically exhausting work, although I think we would attest when we stand up here, we're a little bit physically spent when it's done. I don't remember how we did it twice back in the day. Some of you remember when we had service at nine and a service at 11. I'm glad those days are gone for many reasons. This is, but 
It's, it is physically taxing, but really the work, the labor, the diligence, the exhaustion is a spiritual exhaustion. An emotional spending as we seek to serve you, as we, as we pray for you, as we seek to show hospitality, as we seek to equip you and uh, comfort you and encourage you and counsel you and sometimes to discern whether you need a, an admonishing word or you need a tender, upbuilding, comforting word. It, 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 you see there the categories in verse 14, the idle and the faint-hearted and the weak and we're to be patient with them all, but it's hard to know. And it's labor. It is labor. The men who serve this church as, as elders, they can attest we work hard. We pray for you. You are on our minds. We lose sleep over you. It is labor. And Paul singles out one specific aspect of the labor, and that is the labor of admonishing. I just would not have thought that would be the word. Admonishing you. The calling on pastors is not merely to manage a corporation. We're not running a company. We're not CEOs of a company or entrepreneurs engaged in a business venture in which our job is to make sure that all the shareholders stay happy. We are tenders of sheep, physicians of souls, spiritual watchmen who are charged by the chief shepherd to labor strenuously for the holiness of Christ's church and individually every member of it. I said earlier that, that, that those Christ-like shepherds are laboring for the church's holiness. Why did I use the word holiness? Well, there are different words that I could have used, but I use the word holiness because of what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So if the Bible's open, just turn back there. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 1, Finally then, brothers, he says, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That word sanctification is just a fancy word for holiness. This is the will of God, your holiness, your sanctification. Paul says in verse 7 of, of chapter 4, uh, God has not called you in impurity, but in holiness. So we're laboring. What are we after in this admonishing, in this labor, in this teaching, in this exhorting, in this urging? What are we after? We're after the holiness of God's people. Another way we could put it, we'd see it in chapter 2, verse 11. You're looking at chapter 2, verse 11. For you know, Paul says, how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What are the pastors laboring for? What are we exercising oversight for? What are we shepherding to? What are we after? That you would walk in a manner worthy of God. 
And let me pause right here to make sure we understand what it means to be a Christian because what I've just said could be open to misunderstanding and I do not want you to misunderstand this. When the scriptures speak of walking in a manner worthy of God, it does not mean that you need to live in a certain way so as to earn merit or favor with God by your good life that you live. That is not what Paul means. Now we know it says there in verse 12 of 1 Thessalonians 2 that God is the one who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Like Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb. In and of ourselves, we are as able to live in a way that's worthy of God as Lazarus was to get up from the dead and come out of that tomb. But as Lazarus in the grave was called out by the Lord Jesus. Lazarus, come forth. God has sovereignly called people into his kingdom and glory. He has raised up a, sinless, a sinful dead people. Good clarification. Not sinless people. You'd have to exercise your authority if I was to continue on that train of thought. He has taken a people dead in sin and called them to new life. We just sang that, in that I, I love that hymn. I don't know that that hymn is going to become a regular part of our song bank, but it is just so appropriate for this occasion, this sermon. We just sang, perverse and foolish, oft I strayed, but yet in love he sought me, and on his shoulder gently laid, and home rejoicing brought me. That is us, not competent in ourselves, we were looking at the lyrics earlier in the week, Jim and I, and, and there was a modern version of it, and it said, confused and foolish, oft I strayed. And we looked at that like, no, that's not it. The, the, not confused is far too soft. Perverse is much more appropriate. We were hateful. We were rebellious. We were corrupted. We were despising God. But when we were in that condition, he sought us out in love. We did not contribute to it. He did it all. And he did it through his sacrificial, wrath-bearing death on the cross. That's how he came after us and sought us in love. Just before these verses in chapter 5, in verse 9 of chapter 5, Paul says, uh, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, that means whether we're living still or whether we die, we might live with him. We are saved, we are brought into God's family by trusting in Jesus and his all-sufficient sacrifice for our salvation. If you've not trusted in Jesus today, come to the Lord Jesus. You do not need to do anything. You do not need to earn anything. You have shown yourself to be unworthy, but Jesus is a great Savior. He has done everything needed to provide rest and life and freedom and salvation for you. Receive him today. And for all of us who have, for all of us who've come to see our lowly, miserable condition, yet how lavishly we've been loved in Jesus, every sinner saved by grace finds within himself or herself a yearning and a longing to live in a way that would be befitting of such a great salvation and such a great savior. It's sort of like we just sang when we sang the words, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. 
that, don't misunderstand that song. That does not mean he did so much for me, now I better work hard to keep him happy with me. No, when we see what he's done, when we see how he's loved us, he's cleansed us, he's washed us, there is this impulse rising in the heart. I owe him everything. I want to live for him. I want to live in a way worthy of him. Amen to your amen. Love to talk with you when we're preaching, when I'm preaching. We have that longing there if we've known that grace. But because we are still at war with sin, because we're not yet what we one day will be, we can grow weary. We can grow faint-hearted. We can grow weak. We can feel our souls to be divided. And so we need the loving exhortation and encouragement and urgings and charges and even the admonishments of pastors, not just of pastors, but actually of every member of the body. That's one of the reasons why I wanted Ryan to read verse 14 because that word, verse 14, is the whole, brothers, admonish. So the the pastors are charged to do an admonishing work, but then the whole church, the brothers are said, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. We all need patience. We're all to give ourselves to this work. We need that work to help us persevere in looking to Jesus in all that he's done so that we might not lose heart as we seek to walk that worthy walk. You see, shepherding Jesus' flock is, is not about managing an enterprise. It's about preparing people to meet Jesus himself so that we might one day present each dearly loved sheep for whom Christ died back to him having cultivated in them the first fruits of that eternal radiance that will be their forever inheritance. That is the work that pastors give themselves to. That is the work that Paul himself was given to. Colossians 1.28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And there are, all ways, there are all kinds of ways that faithful pastors can take up the word to promote that holiness, that worthy walk, that maturity in Christ. But Paul emphasizes this word admonishment. Admonish them. I wonder how that sits with you, saint. You have a need for admonishment. I have need for admonishment. As I've studied the word this week, I I was drawn this definition by a Bible scholar, Greg Beale. He says that this word admonishment has to do with instruction aimed at changing one's moral disposition with respect to both enlightening and warning the ignorant about potential problems ahead and rebuking those already entangled in wrongdoing. How does that sit with you? If that was a little too wordy, here's one a little bit more concise. Exerting positive pressure on someone to do God's will. It is not easy to give admonishment, brothers and sisters, because it is not easy to receive admonishment. Uh, What is nicest for you to hear, I believe we can learn from the word admonishment, what is nicest for you to hear 
is not always what is most needful for you to hear. And pastors are charged by the Lord to bring such words to you as occasion may warrant. Of all the labor that's involved in being one among the flock who is appointed to be over the flock, I'm not sure there's a part of the labor that is more laborious than this. Sometimes we must say no to what you want. Sometimes we must correct you. Sometimes we must contradict your thinking and remind you of something that you have forgotten or neglected or disregarded. And it, and it requires courage for us to do that because sometimes that sort of ministry is not appreciated. And since we're humans, uh, we're tempted to fear people. We're tempted to esteem your approval more than we esteem God's approval. And we get timid and we get tired. And we wonder, is it, does it even really matter because the person's probably not gonna listen anyway. They're probably gonna gossip about me and maybe they're just gonna pick up and leave the church. So would you, would you pray for us, beloved, that we would persevere in loving you more than we do our own comfort, even when it requires us to admonish you? One writer has put it this way. I think this is a pretty powerful way of putting it. A pastor who cares enough about you to risk his relationship with you in order to admonish you is a gift from God to you. Brothers and sisters, cultivate a posture where you understand and value such words coming to you from brothers, brother pastors, but as I said, this is a whole body, one another ministry too, who are sincerely devoted and committed to your holiness. And there's one additional phrase I haven't touched on yet, but it helps to safeguard. If this all feels a little scary to you, there's another phrase here that is so important for us, and it's the phrase, in the Lord. Do you see, in the Lord there? The elders who are over the church are over the church in the Lord. And what Lord is that? That is the Lord Jesus Christ. God incarnate, King of kings and Lord of lords, the theme of heaven's praises, who has eternally ruled over all things by the word of his power, who came to earth personally and relinquished his authority by submitting himself to the agonies of crucifixion to rescue rebels like us who have scorned and trampled on his authority. Though he could have come and condemned us all to eternal torment, the torment that we had so richly deserved for ourselves, he endured hell in our place on the cross so that we could become beloved children and citizens of his eternal kingdom through faith in Christ alone. And a biblically-minded pastor exercises authority in the Lord for the sake of that Lord to represent him as the fruit of abiding in his love, seeking his honor above all and his purposes and priorities in every one of his dearly loved sheep. It is as though the Lord Jesus says to his under shepherds on earth, these are my sheep 
And they are so valuable to me that I gave myself to be slaughtered for their sins, to be brought back into my fold. That's why it's so urgent that you pay careful attention to each one of them. And a pastor who is engaging in his oversight in the Lord does not then shrink back from giving you admonishment when you need it because he knows that ultimately he's accountable to such a loving and holy Lord. But he also doesn't use his authority in a way that is harsh or short or sharp or critical because he knows himself to be one who has fallen woefully short but who has been so richly loved in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're wondering about the second point, but it's a lot briefer. More brief, it's brief. These are the responsibilities of the church's leaders for its members. Pray for us. We are certainly in need of it. But when a church's leaders are functioning in that way, can you see how the call to relate to those pastors in the way Paul describes is really not that much of a burden? If they are relating to the sheep, like I just described, it is not hard to do what Paul says to the members of the church to do in verse 12 and 13. Look again at the passage. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. This word translated respect there. Uh, is used 320 times in the New Testament. And do you know how many times it's translated respect? Just this one. It's a very simple word that means to know. Know your pastors. Recognize your pastors. So you can take that home with you. The pastor said, I don't need to respect the pastors. That's not in the Bible. That's not what I mean. But the word is know them, regard them. And I won't belabor it in view of last Sunday's sermon. If you want to hear more about this, you can listen to last Sunday's sermon. But I do think this whole matter of knowing your pastors, of recognizing your pastors, implies the idea of actually joining a church. It's why I've spoken throughout this sermon of the members of the church, responsibilities of the leaders to the members, responsibilities of the members to the leaders, because the relationship assumes that you know your leaders, that you've recognized them, and that they know you, that you have made it clear to them that you intend for them to care for you and to pay attention to you and to oversee you as one who will have to give an account. In order for us to know who to do that for, we need to have a clear way of knowing who that is, and that brings us back to the meaning of the word church in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1, and the fact that this group that is called the church is not just the group of people who happen to show up at 10 o'clock in the morning when we say we're having a public worship service, but it's something more than that. And if you're wondering what that something more is, I talked about that at length last Sunday. There is a responsibility, I believe in that word know, we ask you brothers to know or to recognize those who labor among you. There is this responsibility to be in a clear, known relationship with a group of pastors. What I referred to in my summary statement when I said affectionately honor those Christ-like leaders really comes from verse 13 where we're told to esteem them very highly in love. The work that I have sought to describe in the first point, 
is such a high calling. It's such a holy calling, such a dignified calling in the sight of the chief shepherd that there ought to be a high esteem, a high regard, a, a value beyond all measure. This word very highly is used in Paul's letter to the Ephesians when he says that God is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or think. There's a, a valuing and esteeming beyond all measure of men who give themselves to this kind of labor and do it faithfully, imperfectly, but faithfully, that produces this kind of love for the leaders and for their work. This esteem, understand church, I'm, land, I'm getting towards landing the plane. Understand that this esteem is not to be equated with blind loyalty. The pastors of this church are not the Lord. Only Christ is the Lord. So listen to and esteem our leadership only insofar as it is consistent with what the Bible says. If you see the leaders of this church characteristically failing in the labor, as I've just tried to describe it for about a half an hour, then it is actually your responsibility, church, to remove us from our positions of leadership. You have a work to do, going back to the authority that the church has from last week. But Hebrews 13, 17, which I had read earlier, obey and submit to your leaders as those who will have to give an account, it does teach that sometimes this high esteem in love will means submitting to a decision that you might not agree with. As leaders, we will at times make decisions. We will have or express convictions, uh, both maybe at, in personal counsel to you or at the corporate level of just how we do things as a church uh, that you may disagree with. Right, they're, they're, that call to submit, I said this in the first week of the series, right? Kids, if, you're, if, I'd say, if, you're, if your parent says, have another scoop of ice cream and you go do it, that's not exactly submitting to them. You kind of want the ice cream anyway. But if they say, put all the screens and toys away, it's time to get ready for bed, that would be something you need to submit to. The idea of submitting involves some measure of disagreement. And when that does happen, particularly as it pertains to the corporate life that we have together, I think the disposition that highly esteeming one in love is to take is one of trust, not suspicion. There should be an inclination to give the benefit of the doubt, unless or until proven otherwise. And again, if we have shown ourselves neglectful and unfaithful, there is something that you can do about that, and it is to remove us from our positions. There have been, sadly, some occasions in my time as a pastor in which a word of admonishment has not been received with respect and high esteem. But if I think about my years here as a pastor, I'm much more reminded of the many, many, many ways in which this posture of respect and esteem has been demonstrated in the life of this church. Uh, I would love to share specific ones of them with you, and maybe I'll do that after the service, because as the great hymn says, the hour is hastening on but know that you have been exemplary in this work in so many ways, and we are grateful for that. 
I'm not sure that you want counsel in this area, but let me give you just a few suggestions of ways that you can do this for your pastors. And when I say your pastors, just hear me right now referring to Craig and Matt and Jason and Steve and Jeff and Dan, who is not serving us right now currently as an elder while he continues to discern his work in India, but he has labored among us for so many years so faithfully. Here are some ways. I'll give you five vowels. Do you know the vowels, kids? Say your vowels. What are the vowels in the alphabet? A-E-I-O-U. Praise God. I'm going to give you some vowels. Just These are some things that you may find helpful. And it's actually not self-serving. It is self-serving. It's self-serving for you. Because in that verse, Hebrews 13, 17, where it talks about uh, your leaders giving an account for your souls, it says, let them do this with joy, not with groaning, because that would be of no advantage to you. So work for your own advantage by highly esteeming your pastors. And so here is some self-serving counsel to you about how to encourage us so that we would be encouraged in encouraging you. Uh, and this is super quick and then I'm, I'm done. Affirm, affirm, I'm giving you vowels, affirm evidence of God's grace that you see in the lives of your leaders wherever it is that you see it. E, encourage us to press on in the work in the midst of the weariness or the discouragement that we may be experiencing. I, invite us into your lives uh, by sharing your struggles, confessing your sins, by honestly seeking our counsel about whether there may, may be anything in your life that needs adjustment. Are you saying, Pastor, that you want us to invite you in so that you can admonish me? Well, like, it's not that simplistic. No, there's other reasons that we would like to get to know you. But it, it, we just did see that admonishing is actually a good thing that we all need for our continuing to walk worthy of God who has called us into his own kingdom and glory. Uh, I cheated on this one a little bit. Be, be open, be open, open, open is a vowel. Be open, share concerns. If there are ways that you're uh, unsettled about the life of the church or the way that we're leading the church or caring for you, Please bring those concerns with us. We, we want to know. We know that we are not doing this work perfectly and we have room for growth. We're praying and, and studying and learning a lot together about how to do it better, but you can help us. You can encourage us and esteem us by telling us the ways that we can do better. And you uphold us in prayer before the chief shepherd of the flock. So I need to conclude. Let's end this series of sermons where we began. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Good authority is a great blessing. And where on planet earth might people find such good authority? Well, of all places, would that it would be in the local church, the churches which exist to represent the God who is perfect in his use of authority. In a culture of deep suspicion, or outright animosity towards the exercise of authority in a culture where the ideology is question authority or be true to yourself, 
Here is a way for Christ's churches to be a beacon of shining light. Isn't that just what our very deeply divided country needs at this moment in time? To see a church that is at peace. Did you notice that's the end game here in verse 13? When the leaders are functioning as they're functioning and the members of the church are functioning as they're to be functioning, he says, be at peace among yourselves. Peace reigns where this is happening. So in a world so deeply suspicious and antagonistic towards good authority, may we beg for much grace. May we beg the king of love, who is our good shepherd. May we beg him for much grace to live all this out to the praise of his glorious grace. Love you, brothers and sisters. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for its instruction. We thank you for its admonishment. We pray that you would help as it's been a theme throughout this service in confession and in seeking you already. Help the men who are tasked with overseeing this church to be men of character, men of integrity, men of humility, men who are above reproach, as the scriptures call us to be. May we lead with love. May we lead with your heart. May we lead in a way that reflects the king of love. And would you help all of us to be encouraging each other, building each other up, looking to Jesus together, that with one voice we might glorify you and praise you, our Father, who has made us one through your dear Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.